So I've heard a few people make some comments about the rain and the massive amounts of it that we're having out there. But I just want to say from, from our standpoint, we are praising God right now that it's not snow. Because the forecast for yesterday in Casper, where we came from, was 20s and 30s with snow coming down on the ground. So we're sitting here going, it's February 28th. Yesterday on February 27th, we were walking down to Speedy Pete's as a family with shorts and t-shirts on. Now, some people thought we were a little nuts, but again, we just came from Casper. Walking down there, shorts, t-shirts, thought it felt amazing. We were outside all day, so th- I, I say that to say thank you for inviting us out here so that we could enjoy a warm end of February and an awesome-looking forecast going into March. We are, you know, I've, I've shared a little bit of our journey of getting used to Indiana, and I think that's going to take a little bit of time, but yesterday, I think it was, Sarah actually woke up and she, she kept getting on to our dog, our, our little uh, poo chow that we have. She says it's a, a chow poo. It, it's a poo chow. Let's just be real with what it is. But um, no, she kept getting onto our dog for whining in its cage, and she finally realized it was birds. And so she texted a few friends. She's like, okay, why is, new to Indiana question for you, why do I feel like I just woke up in the movie The Birds? Because we looked out our front window, our back window, our side window, we looked out the garage, and we were just surrounded by flocks of black birds. One of those things that we're getting used to with Indiana, because I'm not even sure that many birds even made it up to Wyoming, uh, just with their migration and everything. But, but it was something. She had, she had to apologize to the dog, and then we had to be careful letting the dog outside because we were afraid that with that many birds, it might just take the dog away because that thing weighs next to nothing. But <laughs> So it has been an adjustment, and it's continuing to be an adjustment. And one of the things that I've realized is that there are some stereotypes about Indiana and Indiana people that are true, uh, but there are some that maybe are less accurate than others. One of those is that, so anywhere else in the country that you live, when they think of Indiana, they think all those people talk about is basketball. Basketball, basketball, I mean, there was a movie, Hoosiers, it was all about basketball in Indiana. It's all they think about. They've got Larry Bird, they've got Bobby Knight, that's all they talk about. And what I've realized since being here is that while there is a love for basketball for sure, which I greatly appreciate, it is not quite the fanaticism that I expected living out here. There are, there are a few of you who are fanatics about it, but for the most part, the conversations have not steered that direction. In fact, I think I've had more conversations and learned more about corn seed and soybean seed than I have about conversations about basketball. So, you know, it's one of those things that I came out here assuming, hey, I'm from Kansas, I'm going to blend right in because I can talk basketball all day long. And I realized, oh, I actually have to learn how to talk about something else, too. So that, it's been a great adjustment. But we do that in relationships sometimes. We do that in friendships. We do that when we first meet somebody, that we make these assumptions. We make the, based on stereotypes or just based off of the first impression that we have of somebody, that this is who these people are or this is who this person is. And we really kind of like to use those things to just skip over those first several steps of getting to know somebody. Like, I don't need to get to know this about you because, and maybe it's a gender stereotype or it's a a racial stereotype or whatever it might be. I already know this about you because you live in Indiana. So I'm just going to skip all these steps instead of recognizing that that people, no matter how simple and down-to-earth they are, 
are very much like the analogy that we hear that they're like onions. You know, that it's a, you just, you peel back one layer and there's another layer to look at and you keep on going down, you keep on going down and there's still, there's more and more layers. I don't know why they use onions, it's a disgusting thing to eat, but there's more and more layers that you have to peel back to really get to know somebody. It would be a lot easier if we could just be like, you know, I already have figured out all of these things about you, so we don't need to bother with that in our relationship. And we do that, and so many times we find out that that assumption or that first impression, that stereotype was wrong, and it causes damage to the relationship. It causes all this catch-up that has to be done in the relationship, because what I thought I knew about you and what I was just going off of, instead of just stopping and asking you, you know, I just went with it. And I found out months later that I was completely wrong. You know, I actually, I was talking to somebody back in Casper before I left that for two years had been calling the chairman of our board by the wrong name. You know, and you know, something that simple, he'd been calling him Michael for like two years. His name was Brian. And all of a sudden, someone else said Brian. So he was like, who, oh my, your name is Brian? And like, so this thing that he'd been living under this whole time, and I mean, he was super embarrassed. Brian just laughed about it. Uh, so I think he still calls him Michael to this day just for the fun of it. But, but it's that one simple thing. And as we get to know people, we realize that if you change one little thing about somebody, you really can change the entire person and who they are. You know, Take myself, for instance. I was just, uh, Marla's day walked in here this morning. She said she's been walking, where are you at? Where are you, Marla's? Back there. Marla's was walking in, and she's all, so far she's only seen me on a screen. And she said, on the screen, I thought you were like 6'4". <laughs> nope. But if I was, think about all the different things that I would have experienced in my life. And how all of those, you know, I, I would have to duck when I walk into things. I wouldn't have gotten blocked ten times in one game when I was in junior high. You know, all of these things that would have been different, which all of those experiences would have then changed my personality and they would change who I am this, to this day. You know, you take somebody who's shy and quiet and you just, you give them that little burst of, okay, they're going to be a loud person instead. And it changes so many things about them. You change somebody's family background. You change their relationship background. You change one of these things and it really seems to change the entire person. And it can seem to change everything about this person. And Jesus is the same way. You know, many of us, we've grown up with these ideas about Jesus, and, and hopefully, most of those ideas about Jesus are correct. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm hoping that over the course of the next month, as we talk about some things about Jesus, that it's not just tearing apart everything you ever knew about him, unless that needs to happen, in which case, I hope we tear apart everything you ever knew about him, so that we walk away with an accurate depiction of who Jesus is. But there is, a, there is a theological word that I'm going to give you this morning. So just in case you run into like some theology professor when you're walking through town later, you can, you can say, hey, guess what I learned earlier today when I was at church this morning? I learned this word called heresy. You can write that down if you want to, and then you'll feel really smart when you're having theological discussions. But a heresy is just simply a bad idea about Jesus. It's taking one of those assumptions, it's taking one of those um, you know, preconceived notions, those first impressions, and it's putting it on him when it's actually not something that's true about him. For instance, 
Docetism, so here's another word that you can take to that theology professor. Docetism is the belief that Jesus is fully God, but he is not at all human. He is 100% divine, he is a deity, but there is no humanity in him whatsoever. And now some of you are sitting out here and you're like, well, of course, I would never believe that. Who would believe that? There are a lot of people that believe that. And there may be some in this room today that believe that. Now, here in a little bit, we're going to talk about why that doesn't work and, and why there's so much evidence to the contrary. But to make this a little bit easier, because if you're walking around town and you're having a conversation with just you know, someone that you run across at the Gray's Coffee Shop, and, and they say, so what does your church talk about? Well, we talk about docetism. They're going to sit there and they're going to look, what in the world are you talking about? So we're going to have a little bit more fun with this. And we're going to rename docetism, and actually we're not going to rename it. Todd Miles has already renamed it. Steal it from him. He gave it to us, so it's not really stealing. But uh, we're going to rename docetism the Superman heresy. The Superman bad idea about Jesus. How many of you grew up reading comic books, especially superhero comic books? Anybody? I only grew up reading the Archie comic books, so that wasn't my history, but how many of you grew up watching Superman movies? You remember the Christopher Reeves movies? There's a lot more hands. How many of you have ever watched one of the TV shows based on Superman, Lois and Clark or Smallville or any of those? How many of you have just never heard of Superman before? Anybody? Just, he's this guy right here. Nobody? Okay, just making sure. Well, there are some variants to the origin story for Superman, but generally speaking, Superman was actually a little boy by the name of Kal-El on the planet Krypton. And on the planet Krypton, his parents, his dad was Jor-El, and I, I don't remember his mother's name, but uh, you know, his parents discovered that the entire planet of Krypton was about to blow up. Now, again, origin stories differ a little bit. If you're hearing this origin story from an environmentalist, they would say that it's because the Kryptonians were about to destroy the entire planet and therefore it was going to blow up. If you're hearing it from somebody who's like, I don't believe in any of that green stuff, it was just going to blow up on its own. So either way, Krypton was about to blow up. And so Superman's parent, Kal-El's parents, figured out a way to get him to safety. So they take this little boy and they put him in this little capsule and they shoot it off away from the planet and they shoot it towards this planet in the galaxy that they had discovered previously that they knew would be a good planet for him to go to called Earth. So this capsule goes firing off across space and it comes into the Earth's atmosphere and there's this human couple driving along in their rickety old pickup, most likely because they were in the great state of Kansas. Um, so they're, 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 fly, they're driving along in their, their pickup and the spaceship comes down and they see this just fireball going across the sky and they do what we would probably all do because we'd be curious. They drive over to see what in the world just landed in the cornfield. And so they go over there and they see, man, there's this little capsule here. It's kind of, it's smoldering a little bit. You can see where it's gone all the way across the dirt and left this big old ridge that some farmer's going to have to work out later. And so they, they go up there and they see that in this capsule there's a boy. And they do what every young couple would do if they found a boy in a capsule in the middle of the field. Well, they take him home. 
and they raise them as their own because that's what we would all do, right? None of us would like, call the authorities or anything like that. We would just take the boy home and we would raise him. And so that's what they do. They raise this boy that they found in a capsule in the middle of the field and they don't let anybody know. They just say that it was some long lost relative that had to come live with them. And as they raise him, they begin to realize there's something different about this child. This child, he's faster than his friends. Like, he is a superb athlete. And, and, he, and he doesn't get hurt like his friends. Like he, he, doesn't, his, he doesn't bleed, like, ever. This is the easiest child to take care of. They don't, they don't have to take him in for broken bones or sprained ankles or, or uh, you know, big cuts when they fall off a horse or something like that. Like, no, they just, they have no problems with him health-wise. He's a picture of perfect health. And they begin to realize that, huh, maybe this, this child that we found in a capsule in the middle of the field, maybe, maybe there's something different about this child. And in my favorite kind of, you know, it's the, the growing up scene, I guess you could call it, it, comes from the show Smallville that came out when I was in college. And we would watch this show, I'd sit with all my roommates every single week, and we'd have a bunch of friends, like up to 12 to 15 guys in this tiny little room watching this show. And I mean, it smelled horrible in the room, and it was hot, and... And then I would have to lie to Sarah and tell her that I hadn't already watched it with my friends because I was supposed to be watching it with her for the first time every week. But, but in this scene, he's having an argument with his earth dad, Jonathan. And they've renamed him Clark. So Clark Kent is having this argument with Jonathan Kent and their football and all this kind of stuff because Jonathan's afraid that everyone will realize he's different. And, and Clark's like, I am different. And he takes his hand and he goes over to the wood chipper and he just shoves it in the wood chipper. And rather than his hand having any damage to it, the wood chipper just kind of and explodes a little bit. Like he destroys the wood chipper with his hand. And that's that moment of there is something very, very different about this Clark Kent guy. And you watch the shows, you watch the movies, you know, he has this alter ego of this human who walks around and wears glasses even though he has x-ray vision and can see farther than anybody else can see. And, and he can run faster than a speeding bullet and he can leap over tall buildings and, and he can get shot and just kind of flick the bullet away if that is he doesn't catch the bullet in midair and just kind of throw it back at you or throw it at the ground or something. He's not like everybody around him no matter how hard he tries to blend in. He will never ever be human and that's why he is such a great example of this docetism heresy that Jesus only appeared to be human and it sounds great I mean it, it would be really good for us and it would be really convenient for us if Jesus was never actually human if he was only divine if he was only God because what it would mean is that we would be off the hook. We wouldn't actually have to live up to the things that he told us to live up to. We wouldn't actually have to take these teachings that he gave us and follow through with them. Because after all, we're only human and humans can't achieve these things. Jesus could do them because Jesus was God. He wasn't human. That would be really convenient for us. You know, Todd Miles writes it this way in the book that we're studying together as a church. He says that we are often so adamant about affirming the deity or the godness of Jesus 
that we ignore or even discount his humanity. The problem is that as we read through the Gospels, as we read through the the New Testament, even as we go back and we read about the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, we realize that there's just way too much evidence that he was actually fully human. You know, first off, Jesus had a real birth. Now, his conception was something different, but he had a real birth. You know, we, we like to sing the song at Christmas time of away in a manger, no crying he makes, but, but really, like, let's get real here. He was born in a manger. He had straw sticking him in places that no baby should have straw sticking him. The, he cried. He made some loud noises. As he grew up, he threw tantrums. As he grew up, he bled. He wasn't like Clark Kent. He had, he had boo-boos that his parents had to take care of. He went to the bathroom, and they had to clean him up. His father was a carpenter. There was probably some time or another that he, he hammered his own thumb with a hammer and it hurt and he cried out because it hurt. He had a real birth and he had a real childhood. If he didn't, you know, the story of Jesus when, when he gets left behind at the temple and his parents are, they're walking along and all of a sudden, you know, they're like, what? where's Jesus? You notice what they don't say is, Ah, he'll find his way back. He is God after all. No, they begin to run back. Have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him? Because they're panicking, not because they've lost God. They're panicking because they've lost their human child. Jesus, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus grew tired. There's a story in Matthew where Jesus is on a boat He's been spending his, his entire day serving people and, and healing people and talking to people and he's just worn out and he's exhausted to the point that there is this extreme storm going on, this violent storm going on and his disciples are flipping out. You know, his disciples who are experienced boatsmen are terrified of this storm and they're looking around and they're realizing, kind of like his parents, we don't see Jesus. And so they go and they finally find him below on the boat and he is passed out cold because he was so tired from the exertion that he had given all day long to the point that they have to shake him awake. I mean, this wasn't a, hey, 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 Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, can you, can you, get, can you help us out here? It was a, Jesus, we're going to die. You got to do something about this. Like, have you, have you ever been to that point where you were so tired that somebody had to shake you awake? I know I have. Maybe you haven't experienced that. But that's how tired Jesus was. But as we read in the Psalms and as we read in Isaiah, we see that Jesus, or that, sorry, that God doesn't grow tired or weary. So if God doesn't get tired and weary, you can look it up in Psalm chapter 120 or Isaiah chapter I'm gonna, I'm, I don't want to tell you the wrong one. I wrote this one down just in case. Isaiah chapter 40, Psalm 121. You can look it up. He doesn't grow tired. So if God doesn't grow tired, but Jesus grew tired, then there must be something about him that isn't just God. He also got hungry. There's a story where Jesus walks up to a fig tree, and he's, he's walking up because he's hungry, and he wants to eat something off of it. And there's no figs for him to eat on this tree. So he actually gets so upset that he curses the fig tree and it dies right there. Now, 
maybe you can make the argument that, that God came through on that one. But, but he was so hungry that he got upset and cursed the fig tree and it died. But God doesn't get hungry. He tells us that back in the Psalms. He got thirsty. There's a story where Jesus is talking to a woman at the well and, and all of his followers have gone into town to get some food to bring back to Jesus because again, he's hungry and he's sitting here at the well and this woman comes up and he looks at the woman and he says, hey, can you draw me some water? And we focus so much on the conversation that comes after that we just kind of skim over the fact that he asked for something to drink in the first place. And as he's hanging on the cross, he says, I'm thirsty. But God doesn't get thirsty. And Jesus, because of his humanity, as he's in the garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross the next day, because he knows what's coming, he is in such agony, his humanity is in such agony because he's suffering mentally and emotionally over what's coming the next day that he's sweating dry blood. If he was just God, then he could have easily just said, hey, I know what's coming, it's fine. But instead he's crying out to God. He's saying, if there is any other way, please, let's do that instead. Because I changed my mind, I don't want to do it this way anymore. And then he breathed breath as a human until the day that he didn't breathe as a human when he died on a cross. After being tortured on that cross, he died just like almost every other human in history has died. And I say almost because I know there's going to be somebody who says, but what about those couple people in the Old Testament that were just lifted up into heaven? There were a couple of those. Elijah is either Enoch or Lamech. I can't remember which one. But for the most part, humans die. God doesn't die. Jesus in his humanity came down and became one of us. He didn't just look like one of us. He didn't just act like one of us. He became one of us. It would be so nice if it was a different way so that we could have some good excuses as to why we can't follow through with the things that he's asked us to do. But instead, he really was human just like you and me. If you change one thing about somebody, you change everything about somebody. If you take away his humanity, Todd Miles puts it this way, if you take away his humanity, you lose nothing less than the gospel itself. I mean, look back through the story that scripture shows us. Way back in Genesis, in the very beginning, God creates and he puts humans on this earth and humans come along and they break the covenant that they had with him. They begin this spiral that fractures the relationship that we have with him. God didn't break the covenant. God didn't fracture the relationship. Humans fractured the relationship. And the, the offensive party is the one who has to make payment for the offense. Now it would be really nice 
to just you know, use the, the argument that people have made over the years that I've made over the years of why couldn't God, why can't God just say, hey, it's fine, I'm just gonna let it go, your debt has been paid, nothing needs to be done about this. You know, we love that idea. But the truth is, every debt has to be paid by somebody. There's no such thing as just erasing debt. Somebody has to pay it off. And God, being a just God, can't just wipe it clean without any kind of payment because that's not justice. And I remember making the argument of, yeah, but God can do anything because he's God, he's all powerful, he can do anything. But he can't go against his very nature of who he is. Because as soon as he does that, as soon as he goes against his nature on one thing and says, you know what, this time we're not gonna worry, justice is, we don't need, I'm, I'm not gonna be just this time. Then he's no longer the same God. You change one thing, you change everything. And who knows what we'd end up with at that point. Sin was a human problem, which meant it needed a human payment. And Jesus came to be that human payment. In the Old Testament, we read about all these animal sacrifices that were being made, but the truth is, it wasn't the animal's problem. It was humanity's problem which means we needed a human to pay the price. And he came and he did that for us. He didn't just walk around appearing to be human. He came down and in John chapter one, he moved into the neighborhood as one of us. You know, it'll, it'll take a little bit of time for this Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Wyoming boy to earn the right to be called an Indiana boy. But I don't wanna just be an outsider who lives here. I want to be an, in, I'm not gonna say I wanna be a Hoosier, I'm a Jayhawk, but I want to be an Indiana guy. Not just look like it, not just act like it, but be it. Jesus didn't just come down to look like it and act like it. He came down to be it. And because of that, he can be the answer to our sin. Because of that, he can pay the price so that we don't have to, so that he can answer what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he says, for the wages of sin is death so that he can pay those wages, so that he can relate to us you know, teenagers and, and kids so often, they have troubles believing that we can understand at all what they're going through. They have troubles believing that we were ever actually teenagers and kids at some point. But imagine if, if we as grown-ups had actually skipped all of those first 18 to 20 years and then tried to look one of them in the eye and say, I know what you're going through. No, we wouldn't, because we would have never experienced it ourselves. It's the same thing as when somebody's suffering and you look at them and you say, I know how you feel. And what they're thinking is, no you don't. 
Because you've never experienced something like this, unless you have. And Jesus has experienced this, and he does know how we feel. He does know how you feel when you're suffering, and he's there to show you how you can find peace in it. He does know your physical pain, and he's showing you how you can overcome it. He does know how those battles feel that you're going through, and he is there to show you how to gain victory through it. He knows the struggles you're having with with people who don't understand what you're saying. And he's there to show you how to either explain or fight through it. Not because he was God, but because he was also fully human. It's hard to understand. I still don't fully understand how he can be both all at one time. But he had to be. Because if he's anything less, then we lose nothing less than the gospel. And everything about him changes. Last week, I invited you to write on the back walls one word that described what, or how you would describe Jesus, one word. And then I challenged you over the course of the past week to focus on that word and to just ask him repeatedly, does this really explain who you are? Because I don't want to myself and I don't want you to be walking around believing something about Jesus that isn't true. Just like I don't want to walk around believing something about you that isn't true. And I don't want you to walk around believing something about me that isn't true. So I would invite you to continue to ask these questions. I would If you haven't signed up for a group, I would urge you, find a way to participate in the conversations that we're going to have over the next four weeks. If you can't be in the group, buy the book. Call somebody on the phone. Get a Zoom call together. Have conversations about who is this man that we call Jesus. This morning as we close out the service, our time together, I would invite you to either remember that word or just ask him the blanket question, Jesus, who are you? Jesus, I don't just want to tell you who you are. I want you to tell me who you are so that you're not walking around calling Brian Michael for the next two years. God, thank you for being honest with us as to who you are and to showing us who you are. It's so simple yet so complex all at the same time that it blows us away how we can, we can fully know you yet have so much to know about you all at the same time. So I pray that over the course of this next month and, and beyond, not just the next month, but that you would show us just a few more glimpses into who you are so that we can then take that and understand what it means to know you and to follow you and to love others in your name. We love you, Jesus.